psalm. We've looked at Psalms 85, 62, Psalm 40, Psalm 16, um, Psalm 87 today. And we'll be reading from verse 1 to the end of the psalm. Psalm 87. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born here. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and ask that it may be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our pathway, that we may have the attitude, the heart of the psalmist, and that indeed we may have the attitude and heart of Christ, who is the great prophet and speaks these words to the church. Bless us to that end, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. This uh, psalm uh, was a favorite psalm of the Puritans, and uh, they wrote books, large books on this psalm alone. And what is quite interesting, actually, is I uh, was reading through some of the psalms, and I came to Psalm 87 as I was trying to think about what to preach on, and I prayed that the Lord would help me find a, an appropriate psalm. And as I was reading Psalm 87, I thought to myself, you know what, Mark, don't admit this to anybody, but a lot of the stuff you're reading right now, you don't remember reading before. Uh, that's what came into my mind. And, well, uh, I didn't obey myself by not telling anybody. Has that happened to you before? You read something in God's Word and you say, hmm, you know, I haven't read this for a very long time, and I want you to take a lot of solace in the fact that, and this may worry you actually, that your pastor is reading a song going, wait a minute. Well, uh, I can assure you that if you think that's bad, uh, wait till you go to Presbytery and listen to guys answer questions. It's far worse. Uh, oh, there's Scott. Hi, Scott. Bless you. Stay warm and well fed at Presbytery. I won't be there. So there's this Psalm 87. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to someone preach on it. It was such a boring sermon. I fell asleep at my bed uh, and thought, well, I'm going to give it another chance. And so I read a book, and one of the books was by Stephen Charnock, just on this psalm. Thomas Goodwin has a book also on this psalm, and Charnock opens up, and I love the way in which he opens up. He says, whoever wrote this psalm was ecstatical. And uh, I thought, well, if this person was ecstatical, then I need to follow in the footsteps of this person, and I need others to be ecstatical. And uh, Ecstatical is uh, Old English for ecstatic for you young people um, who are sitting here. 
how are we going to be ecstatic in this life? And that is a Christian uh, blessing that probably we should try to recover. Ecstatical Christians. Uh, there's an idea for a book. Ecstatical Christians. What should make us ecstatic? And it's all right here. In fact, this psalm branches out back to Genesis and through to Revelation with all of the major important themes of what makes up the Bible. You want a summary of the entire Bible in a psalm? It's right here in Psalm 87. Now notice what we end up seeing at the very beginning, that on the holy mount stands the city he founded, clearly speaking of God. But what is the holy mount? Well, the holy mount is where God meets with his people. It is a place where God establishes truth, where he communicates, where he fellowships, he communes. I believe that Eden was on a mountain, that as rivers flowed out from Eden, Eden was a temple that was a mountain, that it was a place that was higher than other lands around it. And what you find in the scriptures is that significant things usually take place on mountains. Go to Mount Moriah, God says to Abraham, and worship. Moses goes up on the mountain to visit with God and receive the Ten Commandments. We're told in the Psalms, Psalm 15 or Psalm 24, who may ascend to what? The hill of the Lord. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Or you get to the New Testament and Jesus takes up Peter, James, and John to Mount probably Hermon for the Mount of Transfiguration. And there he is glorified. And God speaks, this is my son whom I love. And you can go to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, and it's one of the grandest descriptions of the, the day when all of the nations will meet together. And Isaiah has this language, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And what will happen? The nations shall flow to it. The nations. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, who may teach us his ways. So here in Psalm 87 verse 1, on the holy mount, you know something significant is going to take place. And what is that? There's a city that God has founded. God has founded a city. And this city, we will find out, has many important key characteristics, the first of which is found in verse 2. He loves this city. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. There was something unique about Jerusalem, about the mountainside in Jerusalem where the temple was, and God loving the other places in Jacob, the other places of worship, he especially loves the gates of Zion. And this is taken to mean in the New Testament something much greater than the mere temple that was made with hands in Jerusalem. It is speaking about the people of God. So the gates of Zion is what we call synecdoche, a part for the whole. It is to speak of the wisdom and the strength and the establishment of the people of God. 
And so in Revelation chapter 7, verses 7 to 9, the people of God go in through the gates that we are the temple and God loves the gates of Zion. That is, God loves His church. And that is the highest and most glorious thing about the church. Take away the deacons. Take away the elders. Take away the buildings. Take away the chairs. You could still have a church. You could still even have a church without a baptismal font. You could still have the church without books of the Bible. There's a lot of things the church could do without. The church cannot exist without the fundamental fact of its existence. God loves the church. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Take away that phrase, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. You do not have a church. The Lord loves. And when He speaks to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, you see it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, and He goes on about how you are not the greatest of all the nations. You did not have the most people. And then He finally comes to the reason why He chose them. And what is the reason? Simply because He loves them. That is the greatest reason you can choose anyone. The young people, they, they want me to, to preach a sermon series on finding a spouse. And uh, hopefully I can lower the expectations of what to find in a young man uh, was one of the um, points of application that they were hoping would be made. Uh, could you lower expectations, Pastor Mark? Some of us are single and finding it hard. Uh, and um, I'm not about to venture into that territory quite yet. But I will say something. What is the greatest reason that someone could ever want to marry you? Is because they love you. And once that fact is established, true love that is the foundation of a marriage. It is the same thing here in the church, but in a much greater degree. God founded a city and He loves it. That's what's important. He establishes a city and He loves it. And after you have established that God loves His church, everything flows out of that reality because of who He is. Now, what does he do? Well, he makes promises to the church. Notice in verse 3, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Glorious things of you are spoken. So if God has founded a city and Zion, you have come to Mount Zion. The author of Hebrews understands that to be the people of God. You've come to the assembly of the righteous made perfect. You've come to the place where God has established His city that He loves. Once you establish that, you find out that glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Now, the church does not speak well of itself. The world certainly doesn't speak well of the church. But what's amazing to me is how the church seems to be embarrassed by the church. So you think about the people of God, and you think about how we speak about the church, 
And is it not true that we tend to be leaning towards the more embarrassed, the more, well, yeah, that's not good, and this is not good, and that's not good. And we've lost a type of holy pride in what the church is. We're ashamed of the church. And I'm not about to stand here and say there's nothing in the church of which we cannot say, well, that could be better. But on the other hand, if God is prepared to say glorious things of you are spoken, then I better not have a different attitude towards the city that he founded and loves than God has. Now, if anyone should be able to have a bad attitude towards the church, it would be God. And yet he has the best attitude towards the church. Better than some of your attitudes towards the church. He loves the church. Loves the church, warts and all. And says, glorious things of you are spoken. God speaks well of the church. The angels will speak well of the church. They are in our presence right now. They are witnessing the worshiping community. They are here. And the church triumphant speaks well of the church. And it is your duty to find anything and everything about the church that is praiseworthy, to meditate upon it, and to praise God for it. To praise God for the fact that the person sitting beside you, apart from the grace of God, could have stabbed you. People do get stabbed in our society. Down the streets from me, my wife's driving home one day, sees a guy being held up. He is stabbed. He's killed. A dispute breaks out on a bus, an argument, next thing a stabbing, then there's a shooting. Look, (laughs) something's going wrong. And apart from the grace of God, we'd all be murderers, we'd all be killing one another, we'd all hate one another, but the mystery of grace is that he takes rebels, he takes people hell-bent on destruction of themselves and others, and he makes us, albeit imperfectly in this life, to have love, to have joy, to have hope, to have faith, and to be worshipers of God. Glorious things of you are spoken. Don't have a different attitude towards the church than God does. Now, who belongs to this church? And you'll see that it's most interesting in verses 4 to 6. Among those who know me. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3, This is eternal life. What? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's eternal life, to know God and hear among those who know me, among those who love me. Because the Hebrew understanding of knowing here is clearly among those who love me because I love them. I mention Rahab. That's Egypt. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7. You'll see that Rahab is Egypt. And Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. Now this is most remarkable because Tyre was a Phoenician city which was culturally Canaanite. And you have Babylon where Israel went into bondage in Babylon. And you have other places like Egypt where they were in bondage in Egypt. You've taken historical enemies of Israel. And lo and behold, those who know God are actually now God's enemies. This one was born there, they say. 
and of Zion, this one and that one was born in her, for the Most High Himself will establish her. This is remarkable. God is going to take His enemies and make them His friends. If you were to write this today, verse 4, you would say, among those who know me, I mention Burma. I mention China, Eritrea, Iran, Afghanistan, North Korea, Pakistan, Syria, Vietnam. God is going to make those nations His friends because He has founded a church and this church extends far and wide. Among those who know me, are my enemies, and the Most High will establish her, and they will be born of God. Nicodemus, you are Israel's teacher, and you don't understand this? It's in Psalm 87. You wonder why he should have known? Do you ever wonder when Jesus says, you don't understand these things? There it is, right there. If you know God, you must be born of God. And that is precisely what takes place. You are born and you have a mother and the church is your mother. If God is your father, the church is your mother. And it's glorious because of its inhabitants and it lasts forever. When Daniel's interpreting the dream in chapter two, it's quite remarkable because he talks about, you know, the statue and how it gets crushed and he says, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms And bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. The people of God will stand forever. But Peter, I think Peter must have had Psalm 87 in mind when he opens up to the exiles. And remember, Peter opens up to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, to people scattered throughout. And then he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has what? Caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. Here, Psalm 87, This one was born here, they say. God gives birth to worshipers. God gives birth to those who will serve Him. And the Lord records, verse 6, as He registers the peoples, this one was born there. This one. Take your name and read verse 6 quietly right now. The Lord records as He registers the people. Put your name right there. Was born there. That's what he's saying. Was everyone born in Surrey? No. Was everyone born in Vancouver? No. Wouldn't it be interesting to take all of the places where we were born, all of the cities where we were born, with just this little group of people, and find the multitude of cities where we were born, and then to find that God has taken people from all over the world and He has given them a new birth and said, this one was born here on my mountain where Christ was crucified. That's where your birth in a certain sense happened. So what is our response? Well, look at verse 7. Singers and dancers alike say, I wonder what category you fall into. <laughs> I th- just occurred to me, singers and dancers alike are responding to this. And uh, Charnock said the psalmist was ecstatical. Um, 
I do wonder if, if perhaps we ought to find ourselves in verse 7, um, a singer or a dancer. I'm going to have to go with dancer myself. Uh, <laughs> I think some of you are probably singers. But what are they really trying to say? All my springs are in you. Basically, all of my life is in you. There's a song that we're going to sing at the end. Glorious things of thee are spoken. And one of the stanzas, Who can faint while such a river ever flows, always flows their thirst to assuage. There's always a river to keep us nourished. There's always a river to replenish us. There's always a river to keep us. Grace which, like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. All my springs are in you right there. Grace which, like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. There is a river that makes pleasant, that makes pleasant, whose streams make pleasant, make glad the city of God. And that river is from the Lord. All my springs are in you. Now, just a few points of application before we close. I'm not sure I'll be able to get through them all, but I had four. And I wanted to talk about how the church is going to have many children. Many, many children. And the reason this is important is because I was listening to, actually I was reading a tweet by the great South African pioneer of all good things in the modern age, Elon Musk. And he has this tweet, and if you don't know what tweets are, Twitter, may God bless you. He says, population collapse due to low birth rates is the biggest risk to civilization. That's an interesting statement, you know, and you can decide after how much you want to debate that or not debate that. It's well beyond my uh, intellectual abilities to know that. Maybe not his, but who knows. But the actual flip side of that is that population increase of the people of God is the whole reason for civilization. The whole reason God makes a universe and an earth. And the whole reason God still gives us sun and air. And the whole reason God still gives us the wind and still gives us all of these natural things. And He still gives us blessing upon blessing is so that there may be a population explosion of peoples from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And the Scriptures never hide the fact that there are going to be a lot of people in heaven. In fact, so many that in Hosea we're told, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the see in that context that's a remarkable statement because it was a small nation at that point which cannot be measured or numbered and then you get to revelation chapter 7 and and john says i looked and behold a great multitude that no man can number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, there are going to be a lot of people in the new heavens and the new earth. A population explosion, as it were. 
And God can revive the church. You may look and you may say, I don't see this happening. Where is this happening? God can revive the church. God in the Scriptures loves to come back from a position of weakness. Cain and Abel, what happens? Cain kills Abel, but then Seth is raised up. And at the end of the chapter, and we read that men began to call out upon the name of the Lord. Stephen is stoned, and there is one there giving approval. His name is Paul, and he becomes a minister to the Gentiles. God can take a nation in darkness right now and make it a nation of light. North America, especially America, was a nation of light that is becoming a nation of darkness. But Africa could well become in the next 30, 40 years a nation of light. North Korea could. China, India. It doesn't matter. God will build His church. He founded it and He is going to make sure He fills it. But I also want to break something to you gently for those of you who have issues with the church. And one of those issues that I often hear as a pastor is this. Well, you know, I don't like to go to church. There are too many hypocrites in the church. And I've chosen my words carefully, and I'm going to read them to you. That is the dumbest, lamest, most pathetic excuse based upon the grossest theology possible. Now, I will explain that. Let's just say that you say, well, I don't like the church because of the hypocrites in the church. How do you know who are and aren't the hypocrites, by the way? Do you know one of the gifts that hypocrites have is that you don't know they are? And quite frankly, I don't want that gift. Imagine, oh, I know who the hypocrites are. Poor Mike Chilo, Mark, you haven't talked to me for three months. Well, brother, sorry, but I found out some things. And gets a lot worse, the whole row. And the row behind, well, yeah, even sweet Dorothy and June. And you just go back and you realize, actually, things are not looking good for any of us apart from the grace of God. And so you don't want to... Avoid church claiming that you've got the gift of discernment of everyone's salvation. There's going to be a lot of surprises for a lot of us. But then even so, could you not live in such a way as to help these people? You, you can live in such a way as to help them. Why not be a beacon of light? Why not be salt that you're called to? Did you expect to just go in and be around all sorts of fine people who never say a word wrongly, never have a thought go missing that was, should have been directed to its appropriate end and all the rest? Did you really expect that? Do you expect that of yourself? People have so much negativity about the church and they start to say things, but they don't realize that you're there to make the church a better place by the way in which you live and you think and you act, not to run away from it and claim hypocrisy. And also, you can use these so-called hypocrites for your own good. Ah, yes, there's a jerk. Perfect. I'm going to have someone I can love even more. Ah, there's someone who doesn't like me. Oh, perfect, I can pray for them. A lot of the commands in the New Testament are actually directed towards people that aren't especially nice. 
So even if you could say, well, we've got a really bad church, that's the best place to be sanctified. Faith church got a lot of bad people. Well, if you really want to be holy, this is the place to be. If you think about, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mock you. There's no real good reason to have such shame or make excuses about the church. And Jesus didn't abandon the church, and he even knew. So he actually had a gift that we don't have. Did that stop him? Did he just say, you know what, I've stuffed this, I'm out of here. Or did it cause him to love the church? Because apart from the grace of God, we're all hypocrites. And yet, that doesn't keep him from showing love to hypocrites. Glorious things of you are spoken. So why does God found, why did He find all of you and gather you in? And why does He love you? And why does He promise things of you? And why does He speak glorious things of you? And why does He say this will be forever and ever? And the answer is because of His Son. You see, we read Isaiah 49 earlier, and it's really another commentary on this psalm, but He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant. This is the Father speaking to the Son to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too small a thing that you who should become flesh and live in such a way as to obey my every word and lay down your life and be raised from the dead. It's too small a thing that you should have a small group of people as your reward. No, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. Why does God do all of this? Because He loves His Son. And you belong to His Son, and so by extension, He does all things because He loves you in His Son. Now, there's one very basic question you can ask yourself. How much do you love Jesus Christ? How much? How much do you actually love Jesus Christ? And there's a way to answer this. There's a number of ways. I'm not going to give you all of them, just one of them. One way is to say, how much do I love the church? A lot of people are very comfortable saying, oh, I like Jesus. I just don't like his people. Have you ever heard that before? That's the worst theology besides the other theology I mentioned earlier. In fact, it's worse. You can't say that. You can't say, I like Jesus, but don't like His people, when the Jesus you allegedly like loves those people. So you're saying, I like Jesus, I just disagree with Him about what He thinks. Do you see how crazy that is? Jesus doesn't give you that option if He laid down His life for the church, and if God the Father loves the church and establishes and promises and protects and says it will last forever, you must make the church and the glories of the church your chief aim in this world because nothing else will last from this world except the church. So how much do you love Jesus? How much do you love the church? Evangelicals today have an anemic, anemic doctrine of the church. 
And that's because they have an anemic doctrine of Christ and God and don't understand that we are to love the things that God loves. And if God loves his son and he loves his son as the husband of the bride, you are to be likewise committed steadfastly to the growth of the church, the glories of the church forever and ever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for Zion for the gates that we have entered through and are protected and nourished by the streams of living water that flow from one who has no lack in him to supply us. And so we pray that as we are supplied by the grace of God forever and ever, we may remember that our love for the church is also our love for God and our love for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.